Mrs. Mulray, I think you're hiding something. Well, I suppose I am. Actually, I knew about the affair. How did you find out? My husband. He told you? And you weren't in the least bit upset? I was grateful. Mrs. Mulray, you'll have to explain that. Why? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cold O'Lane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 83, and that is Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I've picked Chinatown from 1974, directed by Roman Polanski, with Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Huston, Perry Lopez, John Hillerman, Daryl Swirling, and Diane Ladd. A private detective hired to expose an adulterer finds himself caught up in a web of deceit involving corruption, water rights, murder, and family secrets. Well, this is an auspicious occasion today. This episode marks the third anniversary of the show. And I guess to commemorate that, you have your third entry in what is apparently your ongoing series about how do we, or can we, separate the art from the artist. First, you had Woody Allen, then you had Michael Jackson, and now Polanski. So, happy birthday to us! What are you going to do for our fourth anniversary? A retrospective of the works of Albert Fish? I'm going to do all Kirk Cameron films. <laughs> Great. I promise this choice was completely unintentional, but I am really looking forward to that discussion. Because I think the world has changed from two years ago, even a year ago. But we'll save that thorny discussion for later. Okay, so where should we start then? Let's get right into the film with 1937-era Sepia Paramount logo and an old-style credit sequence. That's a great place to start, because the first thing it makes me think of as soon as images appear on screen is how we are at basically what is ground zero for neo-noir here. And that's a thing that I think may be even harder to pin down than film noir as far as where it begins. You have a film like Blast of Silence, for instance, that we watched recently, and that's from 1961. So it's well outside of what's considered the classic noir period, but it's got enough of the trappings of the old school to be an obvious throwback. It's more of a bridge film to me, though, than full-fledged neo-noir, because it lacks some of the self-consciousness and modern sociological aspects common to neo-noir, so that it's somewhere in between. To me, self-awareness is the key to drawing a line between the two. The architects of film noir didn't know that they were creating a genre. All of our post-war angst was subconsciously seeping into these crime films, and it took French critics to put it together that this was coalescing into something. Neo-noir, on the other hand, I feel, knows that that's what it is. It can be earnestly employing these conventions and unironically playing it pretty straight, or it can be done with a wink. But in either case, it's done consciously with a knowledge of what came before fully aware of the foundation that they're building on. And I know it's often a fool's errand to say that any particular title is the first one of its type. Point Blank, I think, is getting there in 1967. But I look at a film like The Long Goodbye, which we covered in episode 17, as the Rosetta Stone. It's the arrival of the fully formed neo-noir. 
it ticks all those boxes. You've got that in 1973, and then a year later we have Chinatown, and this is definitive. It's subversive in a way that could have only been in the 70s, but it's also long on visual style like the originals. And this is all a long way around to saying that, yes, you're right. It is these opening images that make me think that. This beautiful old Paramount logo and the sepia tone, the art deco feeling, and all presented in full screen, not widescreen. It feels like it's an invitation to step back in time. It also feels like it's a nod to the golden age in that way that it is presented so conspicuously as a name above the title star vehicle. What struck me right away was that indelible Jerry Goldsmith score leading right into our first scene. Burt Young is the cuckolded husband looking at the evidence. Yes, we begin both in media res and in flagrante delicto. And, and this will be the first of many instances of photographs playing a big part in the storytelling. Images and lenses and vision being big motifs in the story. And it's our introduction to J.J. Giddes, our private detective. He's going to be different, at least to me, than other detectives we're used to, and I think a hallmark of the neo-noir genre as well. Is that because he feels a little aspirational to you? I think that's what it is for me. The work may always be this same sort of low-rent peeking through keyholes, but he is not some low-rent private eye. It's definitely that, and seeking to rise above the vulgarity that might come with that job. But I'm also thinking about all of those detectives that came before him, both in the solid film noir genre and outside of it. I don't know very many of them that are as snappy a dresser as he is or has as nice an office. He's got these nifty new Venetian blinds that Burt Young is chewing on as much as the scenery. He's got the secretary that is not his girl Friday. He's got the other assistants. He talks about his metier. And it's when we see the woman who we think is Mrs. Mulray come in, all flashy and hard, that we see a big difference. He tells her to go home if she truly believes she's being cheated on. If you love him, don't follow down this path. This scene and his response to her makes me think about a few things. I said he was aspirational. I also get the impression that maybe he's luckier than he is smart. Definitely more so than he is industrious. Adultery isn't particular about its zip code because we go immediately from this blue-collar episode to Uptown with Mrs. Mulray. So there's clearly money attached to this case, and it makes me have to ask, why is he so dispassionate about this? Is there something about her that puts him off? Or is advising clients to let sleeping dogs lie just normally the way he does business? Is it because that she seems like she's more trouble than she's worth, perhaps? That's why I like the blurriness of neo-noir. It could be that the spectacle he just participated in with Burt Young was a little too much for him on that day. It could be that with the installation of the Venetian blinds, he's hoping to take the business to another level. It could be that he doesn't feel like getting down into the mud. But I think more than anything, it's that detachment that you mentioned. I think there's loneliness and sadness there. He's a kinder person than we're used to dealing with. I could easily see it as more of a jaded thing. And I wonder, after having seen so many films like this, do you think this is still a thing? Are the majority of private eyes kept in business because of philanderers? I'm vigorously nodding my head. That's only based on other examples that I've seen. For example, 
In Partners in Crime, when Tommy and Tuppence set up their detective business, they learn right away to take no divorce cases because they're so unseemly. There's also the aspect of this that Hollis Mulray is kind of a big fish, so this could potentially be trouble politically for his career. I think that's another great point. I truly don't know the answer. It's a little bit more spelled out for us when we look at characters that Humphrey Bogart had played. They still seem to be able to idealize women. And I don't see that happening here in quite the same way. In the end, he is going to take the case. He's going to start spying on Hollis Mulray, who is the chief engineer of Water and Power. Could there be a more appropriate name? We have learned that for Jake, money doesn't matter, but he's about to enter a world where it very much does. We're going into a town meeting or a council meeting regarding a proposed dam that, if built, will divert water and bring it into L.A. And the point is made, quite rightly, that L.A. is a desert. So without this water, L.A. can't grow. But with the water diverted, that means that the farmers are left with nothing. And we're introduced to Hollis Mulray. He is the person that would be tasked with building this dam. He says he won't build it. It's too dangerous. And that's accompanied by many boos. And a farmer brings in some sheep to disrupt the meeting, saying that you stole water from the valley. I don't know how sharp my PI skills are here, but Hollis Mulray seems distinctly like a man who would not have an affair. That sex is not high on his list of priorities. Is it fair of me to assess his sexuality, or in this case, asexuality that way? I don't think this bit of casting is an accident. I'm assuming you're talking about the thick glasses, the bow tie, his thinness. Nebishy, for sure. A bookworm, an accountant. He's not the type of guy that you look at and he inflames passion in you, it doesn't seem like. But I guess everybody has a type, so maybe. The other thing I take away from this meeting is that it is clear that people are angry and hurting. Specifically the poor, the working class, the farmers. You don't bring a bang load of sheep all the way to City Hall unless you are serious. Let's get into the California water wars, shall we? Okay, let's do it. Hollis Mulray is very loosely based on William Mulholland. And the film itself is based on these California water wars. Contrary to what some people might believe, the film is not a docudrama. They did take a number of liberties. And that starts with the character of Hollis Mulray himself. If he's based on William Mulholland, he's kind of having it both ways. To make a very long history short, William Mulholland did terrible things. He was, in fact, head of what would become the L.A. Department of Water and Power. He supervised the building of the Los Angeles Aqueduct, which did move water from the Owens Valley to the San Fernando Valley. He did have an early partner in Frederick Eaton, who would become mayor of Los Angeles. So if you think about those two partners and the characters of Mulray and Cross, whom we'll come to know in a bit, together they conspired to destroy lives and destroy land. Mulholland's career came to an end in 1928 because of the failing of the St. Francis Dam. The dam failed just 12 hours after he and his assistant had inspected it. This resulted in over 400 people being killed, about 100 of which were minors. And although he took complete responsibility for the failing of the dam, he was not held criminally responsible for it. 
So while Mulray says he won't build the dam, it's too dangerous, he's learning from his past mistakes, Mulholland did not take that path. I think this is a good spot for me to get into Robert Town a little bit and the inspiration for him writing this story. This is considered one of the most perfect screenplays ever written. No script was ever harder to write, he said, for him. He had to juggle all this information to be imparted, not just about the murder mystery, but about dams and orange groves and real estate and water commission meetings. And it's not Exposition City, it doesn't feel like. It doesn't feel narrative heavy in that way. Not at all. You compare it to something like The Big Sleep that ultimately has way fewer moving parts, but is markedly more convoluted than this. The thing that kept coming up in my mind is, what is the appeal of this? In some ways, it could be a pretty drab, unremarkable story when you look at all these elements that we're talking about. And it's not flashy exactly. On its surface, it is basically just a story about real estate scams. So why do people come back to it again and again? And I think it's Robert Town's consummate skill that is the answer to that question. The stakes gradually mount in a way that you are taken by surprise by them, and it is so tightly structured and full of portents and clever details. Something like Jake noticing the flaw in Evelyn's iris and how that foreshadows where a bullet will end up. There are even things that I think are designed to make you not pay attention to them that are critical. I'm thinking specifically about the Mulray's Asian gardener and the pond. You think you're encountering somewhat of a stereotype or a caricature with this grass-glass pronunciation? And you may instinctively push that aside, but it turns out that you should be paying strict attention because both words are applicable to this puzzle right then. The whole thing is like that, airtight from beginning to end. And because Polanski has chosen to film this so much from Jake's point of view, it's we, the audience, who are constantly missing those clues or coming to them too late. But like you said, they're all laid out for us. Yeah, since we're operating from Jake's point of view, we are wondering what is Mulray doing out here in the desert as he is doing his surveillance of him. And I am wondering, at what point does it kick in that you begin to wonder why you were set on his trail? It's not adultery, certainly. You have to know that. Because he's exploring a dry creek bed. He's talking to a mysterious boy on a horse. He's following out an ocean overlook and the pipes that empty out into it. I love that trip from the desert to the beach and how this subconsciously draws a direct line for the audience between the two without making that connection explicit. In fact, I'm missing clues so much I hadn't thought of it until you just said it. We get a glimpse of just how tedious this investigative work is because he is at the beach with Mulray for hours because Mulray's just staying there. He stays long enough to be surprised that water comes rushing out of this culvert. This is apparently what Hollis has been waiting for. I know I said adultery had to be a bit of a MacGuffin here, but how obvious can it be? The action has been completely dominated by water so far. Infidelity was just the jumping off point. But we haven't seen anything that suggests that that is relevant. Water is definitely relevant. There's a leaflet left on Jake's car claiming that our city is dying of thirst. Right before that, I love that transition of the lighthouse beacon above Hollis becoming the streetlight. There are a couple of really nice visual flourishes right here. There's also that shot of the perfectly centered side view mirror of his car right dead in the middle of the screen being the way that we are watching the action in reverse. Another thing I really love is that we get our first glimpse of one of these old private eye tricks of putting the pocket watches underneath the tires so he knows when he leaves. 
And it turns out Hollis was there all night. Yes, as Jake puts it, he has water on the brain. His apparent obsession with it clearly goes beyond the scope of his job. And back at the office, Jake is going through some photos that another operative took. Hollis and an older man seem to be having some kind of an argument. The operative was able to hear a part of it, and the only word that stood out was apple core. Ah, light dawns on Marblehead. I, like you, with the desert and the beach connection, just put together that that is a reference to the Albacore Club that we will soon see. More brilliant breadcrumbs that town is leaving us. He is doling out this info like it's as precious as water in this drought. I think it's pretty cool that we can come back to a movie that I know I've seen several times, I'm sure you have as Mm -hmm. well, and find something new like that each time. There is not a minute wasted. There is nothing that is extraneous or accidental in this. You know what kills me now that you say that about this not being any sort of wasted or filler time? The movie is just over two hours, and there is a story that Polanski was giving direction to Jack Nicholson along the lines of, You need to talk faster. We need to make this film shorter. And that seems insane to me now. I wonder if that's Polanski or I wonder if that's coming from Robert Evans somehow. Because Robert Evans was definitely a very much a bang, zip, let's keep this thing moving, entertain the people kind of guy. Good point. Do you think it has his frosted sunglasses look all over it? I guarantee it. There was a silk scarf in there somewhere. For now, we don't know where Apple Corps is going to take us, but they do have a lead on Hollis Mulray again. He's in Echo Park in a rowboat with a young girl. Everything is water. It's very true. Another one of those instances of lack of vision, I think Jake's expression right here indicates that he thinks that this is going to be easy money. He is still working the adultery angle. He's taking a lot of pictures, but not seeing very much. Because it's evident to me, at least, that this girl that's with Hollis is not what she seems. Not what Jake probably thinks she is. Another instance of this lens being distorted. It's also another element that I love in this differentiation in neo-noir. We have these instances of femme fatales who are not. And I love that it's Jake breaking a shingle that causes them to notice that something is going on. Broken things make a huge difference in this story. Even if he has potentially gotten it wrong on the adultery angle, these photos still end up in the paper, causing a big scandal. Jake is in the barbershop at that moment and gets in an argument with a mortgage banker over what he does for a living. Jake's response is pretty defensive in this, and it smacks a little bit of me thinks he protests too much. You think he feels like his hands are a little dirty on this one? I go back to your idea about that aspirational aspect. He probably sees himself as more than what others might at this point. And he hasn't shaken off that vulgarity yet. It's the way he interacts with this banker, and then back at the office as he's telling this dirty story, as his operatives are trying to clearly interrupt him and get him to stop. What he doesn't realize is that Faye Dunaway is right over his shoulder. From their very first interaction here, they are telling us that he is not the most observant or perceptive, especially where she is concerned. Turns out, she is the real Mrs. Mulray. You got served. My favorite part of this interaction, again back to the screenplay, is her repeatedly trying to ask him and tell him, Do you know me? He clearly doesn't. 
She may want him to. He may seek to, and he just can't get there. There's also a nice little compositional touch of Sophie being visible in the hallway just as Evelyn is leaving. I really like that, too. Jake makes his way over to Mulray's office at Water and Power. He fakes an appointment to get into Mulray's office and starts to go through his desk. We get to see a little bit of the audacity that it takes to do this job. He mentioned that it takes finesse, but he didn't mention nerve specifically. And he knows he's on a clock, so he rifles through as much of this as he can before John Hillerman arrives. It was at the moment right before that, when he's going through some checks, that I remarked that this is truly excellent music. You got that right. I couldn't remember before we sat down to watch this if it was David Shire or not. But then that woozy trumpet comes up along with Jerry Goldsmith's name in the credits and everything clicks into place. It's such an iconic score. You can hear its influence in everything from the Black Dahlia to episodes of Moonlighting. It's even more remarkable when you realize that it might not have ever been. It was the second score composed for the film. The original by Philip Lambro was thrown out. Goldsmith was brought in toward the very end of the process to compose a new one, and he knocked this out in 10 days. Now, there are a number of differing accounts about how this all went down, and I don't know that I believe Lambro's more than anyone else's, but it is sure the most fun to read. He is bitter. He rips everyone involved with his project anytime he writes or talks about this. I'm surprised he's not having it gaffers and electricians. I can see why they opted for Goldsmith, but I don't think Lambro's score was that bad, actually. It wasn't right, but it wasn't bad. Because you've now listened to it. Yes, it's clearly more dissonant, and at times it's more akin to horror film music or a 70s detective show theme. So it's kind of in my wheelhouse. If you want to hear it, you can find at least one surviving clip of the trailer with Lambro's music underneath it, so you can see and hear how it works with the images. One of my favorite anecdotes is Jerry Goldsmith telling the trumpeteer to play it sexy, but like it's not good sex. <laughs> and Philip Lambro was oh, wait, wait, able... Wait. Before oh, we go okay. any further, okay, that is the same exact instruction that I give you for your line readings for our opening scenes for the show. Come on now, sir. <laughs> that is unfair. Well, Robert Evans. <laughs> Let's pick it up. Keep it moving, kid. Philip Lambro was able to eventually release the score as an album. He could retain the rights but not use it with the name Chinatown. So you can find the full music under the album title Los Angeles 1937. Back to the story, though. We're introduced to Yelberg, who is Mulray's assistant. He's pretty insistent that there's no way Mulray is involved in any kind of adultery. He's just not that kind of guy. Whatever his connections are to the deeper, darker parts of this, at least he is reading someone correctly. He may be the first person. Speaking of those deeper, darker connections, he's also got an old crony of Giddis working for him as security. This is Mulvahill. I did want to say that right before we meet Mulva Hill, we do have another little tidbit to add to our index of dirty tricks. As Jake spies Yelberg's business cards and asks to take one and instead takes a fistful. Put that one in your mental Rolodex. Anytime you see a business card, don't take one, take ten. You never know when they might come in handy. So on the surface of things, it seems like the case is closed. He got his evidence of infidelity, so he thinks. So why is he still at it? Blessedly, this is not your standard murder mystery setup. That case was just the impetus for the story that is the real case. And as he's following these threads, he follows one of them to the Mulray residence. I really liked that shot 
over his shoulder as he goes out into the garden. Because in a recurring motif, he's asked to wait and he does not. And there's a water feature, of course. He sees something in the water. That's when we have that interaction with the gardener that you had mentioned earlier. And once again, he doesn't see Mrs. Mulray come out until she's practically on top of him. He encounters the groundskeeper in this case, complaining that the water in the pond in the backyard is, in this exaggerated Asian accent, bad for the glass, meaning grass. And Jake has spied something in the water, like you referred to, but he has more pressing business to attend to. Not the last time that Evelyn's presence is going to distract him from the thing that he needs to see. He wants to square this whole thing with her so that it doesn't affect his livelihood. He wants answers, not just to ignore it and wait for it to go away. And I do believe that beyond his livelihood, he does want to figure out why he was set up. What is the reason behind all of this? That's true. Someone has gone to a lot of trouble to do this. How come? And it's not just important to Jake. Town, again, is putting one of these details right there in front of our face that we are not quipped like Jake to understand the enormity of. There is no understatement in her saying it couldn't be more personal. It's that, along with our first introduction to this concept of Chinatown, that got me excited to discuss this again, because this was one of my first introductions into an oblique film. Not necessarily understanding where everything was going, not getting the references. How old were you when you saw it the first time? I was in my teens, I would say. How about you? Do you remember? Same thing. Probably 14, if I had to guess. I don't know that I was particularly equipped at that point to gather in all the adultness of it. Definitely the same for me. And I did really enjoy that it didn't tell me all the answers. And one of those unanswered questions is all about the specter of Jake's background. Evelyn has told Jake that Hollis is likely at the reservoir, and that's where he heads. There are some of his old cop friends there, and he makes a joke about some likely behavior that they may have done in Chinatown. But we're not in Chinatown anymore. His pal Escobar is now a lieutenant, and as he's explaining that he wants to talk to Mulray, he's told good luck, because Mulray, pun intended, is being fished out of the water. And Jake, to extend our metaphor, double pun intended, is now eyeball deep in this thing. Escobar isn't getting much help from anyone. Evelyn is clearly lying about what she knows about the missing girl. She's not exactly heartbroken about her husband's murder. Bear in mind, there are at least four distinct plot threads going on now. Hollis's murder, what Evelyn is hiding, who initially hired Jake and why, and whatever the deal is with the water. And town never allows them to get confused or lose track of them, and they are all resolved and contribute to the resolution. And it's a pretty odd thing... Coincidentally, I guess, that in the middle of a drought, the water commissioner drowns. There's also another conspicuous drowning victim when we go to visit the medical examiner. Everyone is drowning. We got water out of him. He drowned. The coroner seems to be drawing conclusions to support the evidence rather than the other way around. He is not industrious either. It's now all about when the water comes and where it goes. Jake heads back to that creek bed from earlier in the film and sees that same boy on the horse and learns what he talked to Mulray about. That takes him back to the top of the reservoir. In tracing this path, he is following in Hollis's footsteps and he may be following them too closely because suddenly shots are fired. What is so interesting or valuable about this water? 
who are these people? It's funny that you say that, though. I do have a bit of a personal anecdote about this. Coming from Idaho, in the time period that I lived there, water rights was a huge deal and is still a huge deal. I love that story. (laughs) Thanks a lot. I'm kidding. Tell me about the water rights story. Actually, now that I say that, it's less a personal anecdote than that was the entirety of the statement. (laughs) Spoiler alert, there's no story. Anyway, it's at this moment that water comes out of the pipes and nearly drowns him. And then there's a real physical menace to grapple with as well. It's Mulvihill, and he's got a partner. It's little rat-faced Roman Polanski with his flick knife, which he uses to slice Jake's nostril open. This is serious business. Did we say that? That was so startling to me the first time I saw it. It's such a crippling, unpleasant feeling injury. I have a list in my head of the places that I don't want to be hurt, and I think this may rank only just below being no, stabbed right I don't, in the armpit. I know. I don't want to hear. <laughs> or a paper cut on the eyeball. Oh my god. You're the worst sometimes. <laughs> okay, anyway, Jake is covered in bandages and talking about still trying to get to the bottom of this and trying to sue those big bosses who are running these things. That's when Ida Sessions calls. The first false Mrs. Mulray. She claims she didn't know what would happen, but she won't reveal who her employer was. She just says, take a look at the obituaries from today. Now, the water bond has passed the city council, so this dam is on. Jay goes to meet Evelyn, and she's got a check for him. He doesn't want more money, he just wants the story. This was the scene that we did at the top of the show. There's one thing in particular I love here. As she's trying to be as clear as she possibly can, and he's missing all of those signals, I love that she uses the word grateful twice. What is it about that particular semantic choice that appeals to you? It's her delivery, and this subservient role that she has found herself in, how she's had to rely on people, and how she's had to express that reliance. And also to me, again, it's that other element of this is no femme fatale. He approaches her that way still, though. He thinks she's hiding something, and oh boy is she. She lies again, which he does not understand because he's viewing this through the lens of his usual cases and their motivations. I think of it a little bit the way that cops in the job long enough begin to look at everyone as suspects. He begins to look at everyone as if they're just another part of one of these domestic cases that he's working on. The detail that I like in this linguistically is that when she admits that the C in her monogram is for cross, she practically chokes on it. There are so many interesting things in her delivery in this entire scene from beginning to end, all the way down to as he's driving away, I feel like she's just about to explain herself. If he just waits two more seconds, he would have the answers to all of his questions. I'm right there with you, and I think, again, if this had been a film from an earlier era, he would have already been falling in love with her. They would have already have exchanged this repartee, which they do not. He's missing those cues from her. He's still on this track of, everybody's trying to cover this thing up, which to him is still focused on water. And that takes Jake back to water and power. This time, he finally pays attention to some of those photos on the wall, and he sees Noah Cross and Mulray together. He learns that they, in effect, used to own the water supply for the city, 
in this day and age, how hard is it to get your head around that idea? I can't even comprehend what it must be like to live in a time where one person controlled an entire public utility. That entire resource was under one man's control. I guess it's not as tough because I go back to my story that was not a story of understanding water rights in a very specific way. And I think until you start paying for it, you might think, like some people do, that water is free. It most assuredly is not. The other thing about this, him being partners with Mulray, does Noah Cross strike you as the kind of person who wants or needs a partner? Absolutely not. He's so much more imposing than Mulray is. But it was Mulray who felt that the public should own the water that dissolved that ownership and dissolved their partnership. And while Mulray's name is getting scraped off the door... And another touch that I like, the pictures missing from the walls behind John Hillerman, they are not wasting any time with this. Jake accuses Yelberg of being the person who hired him to discredit Mulray in order to get that dam built, which is coming to pass, and accuses him of dumping water when we're in the middle of a drought. But it's no big deal, Yelberg says. We're just diverting some of this water to the farmers in the valley to help them out, even though they have no right to it. Jake threatens him with taking this story to the newspaper, saying, Call me, I can help. It is never more obvious than right here that Jake does not know the magnitude of what he is up against. What leverage could he possibly have? In one of those instances of, please don't take him up on his offer for helping because it is not going to go well. Speaking of, Evelyn now wants to hire Jake, find out who killed my husband and why. What do you think motivates this? Is she doing this out of fear or is she doing this because she knows what he'll find and she wants to expose it? Once again, I still don't know the answer to that question. When I watch her performance here, it does not seem like smoke and mirrors. It doesn't seem like she has an alternate motivation other than what she has said. This leads into a discussion about her father. She is Noah Cross's daughter, which clearly upsets her, even going so far as to try to light a second cigarette. Cross and Mulray had this falling out. Was it over water or was it over you? We'll find out later. And at long last, even though it seems like it's only been a blink of an eye, we finally get to the other specter that is Noah Cross, played by John Houston. I'm just going to cut right to the chase. This character is disgusting. He discredits Evelyn under the guise of concern. He does tell the truth about Jake being out of his depth. Jake doesn't see it, though. And there's a nice detail regarding that here, actually. Cross serves him fish with the head still on. Significantly, that includes the dead, unseeing eye of the creature. This viewing was the first time, I think, that I noticed so many instances of vision and the lack of it being an ongoing motif. Spectacles, fish eyes, flawed irises. I don't know how I missed so many mentions of it prior to now, but scene after scene... There are indicators that vision is crucial, and almost everyone's, especially Jake's, is lacking. Cross is the one that sees all, though. He is actually the one behind all these scenes, pulling all these strings. He's observant, and he knows that politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough. And this old man is a master manipulator. He sets Jake in search of Hollis's missing paramour. Jake counters with the pictures of he and Hollis arguing. But Cross has one vile objective above all. Just find the girl, Mr. Gitz. No 
was a pretty darn good impression, by the way. <laughs> John Houston is one of those that I can actually do pretty well. Thank goodness you don't have those same mean little eyes that he brought to Noah Cross. You mentioned vision, and I love the duality aspect in that as well. Two eyes, but one is flawed. A pair of spectacles with one lens broken. Two women, the sides of a coin, one deeply damaged. Again, though, Town is not making this about the interpersonal mystery. We instead are off in search of some orange groves. To the Hall of Records! I really wish I had more reasons to go to the Hall of Records. It seems like a pretty fun place. Seems like a whole lot of mysteries are solved there, too. Because we learned that there's all this new ownership happening in the valley. Jake does another sly detective trick and covers the ripping of the paper of the names with a big cough. And so he heads out to one of these orange groves. He passes by all of this dry land, other recently sold parcels, and it's in one grove that he gets shot at by a man on horseback. You'd think he'd get tired of this, but I guess it's one of the hazards of the profession. These are some pretty tough customers. These farmers are angry. The water department has been playing hardball with them over this land. And by hardball, we're talking poisoned wells. All in keeping with what actually happened during those water wars we mentioned earlier. This whole scene with the farmers and the orange groves and the oakies brings me back to that point I made earlier. I mentioned that I was wondering what the appeal of Chinatown is. More specifically, why tell this specific story? It's such a particularly Angelino story that I'm sometimes surprised that it endures and translates so well to viewers all over. It might not have even been started if not for an obscure book about California's water wars and a housing development in Deep Canyon, and might not have been finished if not for the air in Catalina. The mythology of L.A. and its appeal to Hollywood is not really a surprise. The movies like to talk about themselves, obviously, we know that. But why do you think it transcends how pointedly regional it is? I think the story of explosive growth like that and what has to happen to get there is interesting in general. We're of course going to get to the true mystery that underlies this, but this story, the rape of the land, is woven so beautifully and inextricably with the rape of a human that it has something terrible and devastating to say to all of us. Jake gets beaten unconscious and wakes up with the farmer looking over him, he's called his employer, Evelyn is there. He explains all of these shady land dealings to her. This all is extremely valuable if they can turn these farmers out. One of the obituaries that he was pointed to, Jasper Lamar Crabb, died two weeks ago and somehow bought this land one week ago. That's unusual, he says. Turns out that every new name in this landowner's registry are denizens of this retirement home, which has connections to this Apple Corps or Albacore club. So they stop in for a visit. We learn just before this, before Evelyn has a chance to confirm it, that the Albacore Club is owned by Noah Cross. So basically, these are all company people, whether they know it or not. That physical menace is back again. Mulvihill, his partners, getting ready to assault Jake. And Evelyn saves the day by running the car up the driveway, and he jumps in and they take off. Back at her house, she's cleaning his wound, he notices that flaw in her iris. And this begins the romantic portion of the film. It's a gentle kiss that they start out with. This hasn't happened to me for a long time, he says. Things have not been this out of control since Chinatown, we find out. 
She asks why he left the police force. He's evasive. That scene that you mentioned where he notices a flaw in her iris, it seems like she's about to say something else. It's some sort of, and I assume she's about to say birth defect or something along those lines, which alludes to a much longer chain of abuse in this shocking twist we're about to discover. But you're right. Forget all that. It is time to bone down. In their post-coital glow, we discover just how much he clearly doesn't like to talk about his past. He says that you don't always know what's going on in Chinatown. As much as we get is that a woman he cared about was hurt, directly contrary to his efforts. And I think it's a smart play on Towns' part not to go into specifics about Chinatown and Jake's past. That's one of those details that's probably best left to the audience's imagination. In my mind, I can make it much more tragic and heartbreaking than anything that they might be able to spell out. And how does he not see the parallels between Chinatown and where he finds himself now? The bottom line is that he ended up making sure that this person he cared about was hurt. All of these efforts that he went through, whatever things that he tried, ended up having tragic consequences. So he's got to know that whatever tools he thinks he has are not going to work. They didn't before. They aren't going to now. But it seems like he does. Is this just, I guess, town pressing into service that classic noir axis of detective hubris and femme fatale? I think he's just so colossally out of his depth. If we can't see this crazy twist coming, this true family secret, how could he possibly be equipped to have thought that it would even be within the realm of possibility? Noah Cross is practically like Zeus in this scenario. And when you're used to just dealing with run-of-the-mill divorce matters, how could you possibly think that this character exists in real life? So the phone rings and she takes the call and she is flustered and has to go. She says to him, please trust me this much. Why would you? I was just about to say, I think she's earned it. But maybe not. I mean, clearly she's been withholding something. But you have to look at her and know that that comes from some other place. Yes, clearly she has been withholding. No, I don't feel like that she's earned it at all. She has not been forthcoming. Not completely. Though in this case, she was probably right to say, wait here. I guess the difference is she doesn't feel underhanded. True, and he would have been better off had he just stayed put, but he doesn't. We get another one of these nifty private eye tricks, busting the taillight so you know who to follow. One good, one flawed, again. And he follows her to this nondescript house where he finds the missing girl. There's clearly an affection between them. She's in no danger from Evelyn. He still isn't putting it together. He still doesn't understand. Finally, he gets some of the explanation. She's my sister. Though Evelyn's response and the amount of carrying on she does is still inexplicably disproportionate right here. After he gets this information, he won't go back with her. He's at his own apartment, and as he's settling into bed, the phone rings, and a man tells him, Ida Sessions wants to see you. That leads him to Ida Sessions' house, and we find essentially a crime scene. She's been killed. Yeah, he encounters a broken window pane, an open door. None of these are good signs if you are a detective. You know this. She's dead on the floor in the kitchen. This, like the numerous times that he has been shot at, should be a clear warning that maybe we should put this case off. Maybe this is over. Turns out that Lou Escobar and Flatnose are hiding in the shower together. This was all a trick to get him over there. And he tries to lay it all out for Lou, 
but he's being stonewalled. He's passed off as crazy, a troublemaker. Lou insists that Jake bring Evelyn to headquarters. Bring your client in or we're going to arrest her. It's going to be hard to do because the Mulrays are apparently packing up and leaving town, he discovers. We have another episode of the water being very bad for the glass. And this time we figure out this is salt water, which it turns out Hollis had in his lungs. With no other pressing business or Evelyn's presence to obscure his view this time, they fish a pair of glasses out of the pond. And it seems like all signs point to yes, this is where Hollis bought it. Glasses in hand, he rushes back to the house where the girl is being kept, and he calls Lou in the process. Shows Evelyn the glasses, he tells her about the salt water, and here we come to the pivotal reveal. He's on this mistaken trail that she has killed Hollis. And God, that decision to call Lou another terrible decision in a series of terrible decisions. The Dark family secret that's been kept all this time is that Evelyn is both the girl's mother and sister. The best delivery of this, beyond the iconic sister, daughter, sister, daughter, is when she says, my father and I understand. After multiple opportunities, including a couple of false starts where she comes close to saying something, it's violence that actually finally produces the truth. How does that play for you? The idea that this is what she finally responds to. This is what it takes to get her to tell the truth. He could have gotten it out of her a hundred different ways before this moment. That's what it takes him to finally hear the truth. Well, he's got a lot to hear. He asks, he raped you, to which she says no. That's the implication, correct? She answers it by not answering it. It's kind of startling that that word is used, that he finally puts it together, that the blame isn't put on her shoulders. But to me, it feels like it's so much more complicated than that. And only neo-noir, I think, could have done this. This is a devastating reveal in its perversity and explicitness. I would typically ask what the reception of this was at the time, but I think this is a timeless taboo. I don't think that the perception of this changes, no matter if we think we're more sophisticated than 1974 or 1944 audiences or not. I think it's interesting to think about how audiences would take this or any film. There's always going to be a new young audience for something. Because we certainly had the pre-code days, when everything was fair game, and then we all suddenly had to be infantilized, and all of those elements taken away, and then they come back, and then they come back, and then there's always something else. But I agree with you, this is always going to be shocking in whatever year it takes place, and in whatever year you watch it. She also clarifies one last bit of information for him, that those are not Hollis's glasses after all. They're bifocals, the implication of which is that they belong to someone of an advanced age, and I can vouch for the accuracy of that personally. But he's basically sold her out, so they've got to get away by any means. My eyesight notwithstanding, there is even more lack of vision here. There are so many people involved in this who don't know the score. Escobar's response to it might be the one bone of contention that I actually have with the screenplay. I get really frustrated when authority figures won't listen to someone whose story is at least somewhat reasonable. How hard is it to take just five minutes and listen? Especially for an old colleague. This old, we'll see if a night in stir will straighten out your story gag seems a little rote. It's a minor quibble, though. Another genre convention that I like, though, right here we have another P.I. trick using the wrong address that is so right. Jake fakes a plan to divert eyes away from Evelyn and her escape 
and uses his old pal Curly as a means to get away. No stray threads or characters unaccounted for. And here's where we come to what to me is the most devastating of his terrible decisions. He thinks he can somehow pull this together, and he calls Cross in order to have this final showdown because he's put together the glasses or crosses. He's got a bargaining chip. How can he possibly think this is going to go well? Maybe he read The Big Sleep too many times? <laughs> he goes to reel in Cross, accusing him of murdering Mulray right then and there. And it just doesn't matter. Cross is brazen about the land deal that's behind all of this. Jake asks him, how much better can you eat? But that's not the question that he should be asking. He's not just brazen about this deal. He's brazen about everything. He doesn't blame himself for Evelyn. He's of the mindset that all of us just need a slight push when face-to-face -face with our darkest impulses. Another major neo-noir difference that Chinatown takes full advantage of is that lack of the haze code that you referred to. Film noir, in its original incarnation, definitely had those necessity is the mother of invention moments, where they found clever ways to tell us all the unsavory details without actually saying it outright. Neo-noir wasn't hampered by that. You could put a character like Noah Cross and all his repugnance on full display, and it was a different type of repellent. He can tell us exactly what his subtext is. He can tell us what his motivations are. And it's terrifying. You said earlier that Jake is looking at this like everyone is trying to cover everything up. And this is how much he missed the mark. Cross's crimes are not done in the shadows. Not behind Venetian blinds or at the dark end of the street. He is bold and unrepentant. And it is because he is so untouchable. He's growing old and self-satisfied in that warm California sun. Town describes the crime at the root of all this as wanton destruction of the past. It's so much more than money or jealousy. Noah Cross was violating generations to come just as much as his own flesh and blood, and that is true villainy. It makes a heist or a murder of star-crossed lovers look quaint by comparison. This final showdown, of course, is going to take place in Chinatown. That's where Evelyn's safe house is. And finally, it's Jake who's the one that says to the cops, you don't know what's going on. He's rich. You understand? He can get away with anything, which is the gospel truth. Evelyn tries to take her daughter Catherine in the car to get away, as Cross is trying to take her away as well, saying she's mine too. Evelyn has a gun and manages to shoot Cross. However, it's not going to end like that. In the end, in Chinatown, everyone makes the wrong play. Everyone sins. Even Hollis, the most upright character in the film, was complicit and compromised. And when Cross comes to finally, and I mean finally, take this girl away, it makes me want to vomit to watch him touch her. He starts to explain who he is, stumbling over the word grandfather. Even as Jake tries to stop Escobar from shooting at Evelyn as she's pulling away, it's Flatnose who gets the shot off. All we hear is that car horn echoing the moment earlier when Evelyn was about to reveal the truth and accidentally taps her head against the car horn. It's that lonely distant wail and then the screams that start to come up. And as we catch up with the car, we see that Evelyn has been fatally shot through that eye with the flaw. So the end. Now, I usually ask why you chose this film when we do these. You picked this one a while ago. We put this on the schedule several months ago. 
Is your reason still the same? Has it changed? Why is it Chinatown? Why right now? I was so much younger then. I'm older <laughs> than that now. I think in a very silly way, I was thinking about a big title for summer. I hadn't watched this one in a while, and I think it's fun to come back to those benchmark films. I mentioned it was my introduction to the oblique film and also the tragic ending. Which I should mention that Town actually didn't write that way. That was Polanski's major contribution to the film, changing it from a happier ending to this mess. Where all the wrong people are dead. But like we touched on before, the world has been changing at a very rapid pace. So I didn't start out to have a discussion about separating the art from the artist, whether you can or should. And I guess that's in part because I tend to not think of this as a quote-unquote Roman Polanski film. So of course then, in preparation for this discussion, I was thinking about some other examples of things I've been looking at lately, all under the guise of what do we do with this? I've got a couple of examples for you. I have a friend who was recently talking about, in relation to The Cosby Show and some other titles, that sometimes we just have to view the art and make a point to learn from it and do better. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I really disagree with that in terms of The Cosby Show, because in retrospect, I feel like he was having a joke on all of us for years with that. I think that's a great point, and I don't mean to characterize what my friend said as a direct response to that. I think mm. we were talking about a lot okay. of things. And then there is someone like the founder of the Me Too movement, Tarana Burke, talking about R. Kelly and his work. And she said, if you're still listening to this guy, you're directly supporting abuse. And that we can no longer say, in other words, it's just a song. So, coming back to this film, and to the work of Roman Polanski in general, what do we do with it? Well, that thing you say about not thinking of it as a Roman Polanski film is interesting to me. Because when we first started this, I was asking you, Polanski, he doesn't have much of an auteur voice, or does he? Initially, I thought no, but I'm reconsidering a little bit. I realized I was thinking about that primarily in terms of visual style, of a director really putting a visible stamp on a project. And in that regard, I still say no. As a technician, he's solid, but not much of an innovator, certainly. It's not journeyman work, but on the other hand, I don't see a real visual signature. His style seems more of a fit for the old studio system, for instance. An eclectic body of work that is as much a function of assignment as it is anything. That began to change, though, when I looked a little more closely at this in the context of his favorite themes and his narrative devices. Across the board, there's always a strong and consistent subjective point of view. You always have a firm understanding of the protagonist and their mindset. Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby segregate their female characters and subject them to all manner of assailants and horrors. Cul-de-sac and Carnage find isolated groups of insufferable types all trying to out-miserable each other. Ghost Rider is about being in exile and dealing with the fallout of a startling revelation. And then with Chinatown, throw in rape. Underage rape, in fact. And a real authorial voice starts to develop, and it's not exactly a pleasant one. I especially struggle with the art versus the artist argument when it comes to film. If it were more of a solitary endeavor like music, if you were a singer-songwriter, for instance, that's easy to say, don't promote that person's work. But in the case of a film, there are hundreds of people that contribute to that, especially when it's someone that you don't think of as being a master craftsman or someone who has such a distinct style. 
I can't bring myself to punish Jerry Goldsmith, John A. Alonzo, Sam Osteen, countless other technicians and contributors, and say ignore their exemplary work because Roman Polanski did something reprehensible four years after they worked together. Now, yes, condemn away. Anyone who signs on for that knows what comes with it, but not then. Those other people in 1974 and all the things they contributed, those people are innocent. So essentially, do you think we need to take each piece of art, each piece of work, judge it on its own merits, in its own context, and then make a decision? I think so. Again, it's hard to say. It's hard to know where to come down on this. I don't know that there's any right answer that's going to be palatable for everyone. I do know nothing is made in a vacuum, but I also know we have to be very careful about imbuing art with qualities that were not present and were never intended just because of something that happens much farther down the line. The downside to that is who knows what will be discovered Mm. in a year from now, in a week from now, in a day from now. He did some pretty reprehensible stuff on that shoot as well. Not statutory rape as far as I know. God, I hope not. So I feel like I'm constantly on a slippery slope that I didn't even know existed. And I think this is a good place to be. We should be on this slippery slope. We should be constantly questioning these things. I'd be curious to hear where our listeners come down on this. So if you are listening to this and you are either on Twitter or on our Facebook group or just via email, let us know what you think about this particularly troublesome issue. How about we get to recommendations? Okay. For my recommendation, I am choosing The Kid Stays in the Picture from 2002, directed by Nanette Burstein and Brett Morgan, and it is an adaptation of the somewhat breathless, to say the least, autobiography of the producer of this film, Robert Evans. One of my favorite reads. No joke. It's terrific. Robert Evans. Where do we start with Robert Evans? This whole episode could have been about him. The name above the title treatment extends to him as a producer as well. When you watch trailers for Chinatown, the first thing out of the announcer's mouth is always a Robert Evans production of. His name is always first. Fittingly, he also narrates the kid stays in the picture because who the hell else could do it? It's basically one long voiceover that self-aggrandizingly recounts his rise, fall, and renaissance in his decades-long career in the movie business. It's as if cocaine could get a tan. (laughs) He says, There are three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. And no one is lying. It just writes itself. He is dead wrong in that case. It is likely that it is at least half lies, and they are all marvelous. And what about you? This is a little bit of a left field choice until you watch it and then you'll get it. Because I'm not going to tell you about the specific element that inspired this choice, which is The Big Fix from 1978, directed by Jeremy Kagan with Richard Dreyfus, Susan Ansbach, and Bonnie Bedelia, your mm-hmm. favorites. There are some neat connections that I didn't realize until just a few moments ago. Sadly, Susan Ansbach just passed away in April. She also had Jack Nicholson's baby. This one is about an ex-60s radical now working as a private eye who is hired by an old flame to investigate a political smear campaign. Funny you should mention that. Actually, when I was doing a little research about just what exactly is the bread and butter of private eyes, it turns out it's not domestic cases. It's much more surveillance, fraud, and cases like the one that I think you're about to talk about. 
I'm not going to give too much away here because I want you to view it like I did on a Saturday afternoon and it comes out of nowhere. I like it because I love all things Richard Dreyfuss. It's got that crazy twist element I mentioned that inspired it as a choice. And it's just a fun comic thriller. Just like Chinatown. Yeah. So once again, that's two great recommendations. The kid stays in the picture and the big fix. And that brings us to the end of episode 83. If you're all caught up on the regular feed and are just dying for more Magic Lantern, we urge you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magic lantern. If you pledge at the $5 a month level, that gets you access to a treasure trove of bonus episodes that come out on the Mondays between regular episodes so that you'll never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We're cooking up a great episode on the punk panic epidemic of the 80s. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, the fine gentleman of Fuds on Film, John Laubinger, and Travis Trudell. A special thanks go out to Frank and the rest of our friends at Strand Releasing for their help in preparing our previous episode about Lucrecia Martel's Sama, which is out now, so go and pick that up. You will not regret it. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and now Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And one last extra special thank you to Max, Matt, and everyone else at Austin Public and all the fine folks that came out for our birthday Jallo celebration, we appreciate it. Finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 